Redbox Media Programming is brought to you by... We've got good news. The world is open again, and people like you, people of faith, are traveling to Catholic sites around the world. Want to travel with exceptional Catholic leaders this fall, next year, or in the future? Are you looking to see specific sites, celebrate traditional Latin Mass, or travel to destinations without vaccine requirements? We are here to help you deepen your faith on pilgrimage. Give us a call at 1-800-842-4842 or visit us online at selectinternationaltours.com. Select International Tours is your pilgrimage company, and we have the perfect Catholic trip for you. Are you looking to serve God and society? Consider putting your gifts to work as a lawyer. Ave Maria School of Law has been educating faith-filled lawyers for over 20 years. Ave Maria School of Law is committed to training lawyers to use law appropriately around the moral issues of our time. Visit AveMariaLaw.edu to learn more about integrating your faith with a law degree. If you're like my family, it's the classic novels that have really satisfied our need for rewarding and uplifting reading. Author, instructor, and homeschooling mom Eleanor Nicholson is here to share about the richness of Victorian novels, their delights, and lessons. Welcome to Homeschooling Saints, the podcast that helps you create the homeschool you love for the people you love. Our host is Lisa Maladnik, a Catholic life coach, TV host, best-selling author, and an instructor at Homeschool Connections. Before we get started, remember to subscribe to this podcast so you never miss an episode. And if you're watching on YouTube, click the bell to join our channel. Hello and welcome. I'm Lisa Maladnik. Our guest today is the wonderful Eleanor Nicholson, here to have a fun conversation about Victorian novels, their delights and lessons. Eleanor Borg Nicholson, the resident Victorian literature instructor at Homeschool Connections, is herself a graduated homeschooler and a homeschooling mother of five. In addition to scholarly pursuits and child-rearing, she occasionally strays into fiction, including her epistolary novella, The Letters of Magdalen Montague, from Kaufman Publishing and Chrism Press, and her gothic novels, A Bloody Habit, from Ignatius Press, and Brother Wolf, from Chrism Press. A former assistant executive editor for Dappled Things, she is assistant editor for the St. Austin Review, as well as the editor of several Ignatius critical editions of the classics and has collaborated with other editors to provide footnotes for numerous other works. By night, she reads the Victorians, writes Gothic novels, and cares for small children. Welcome to the program, Eleanor. Thank you so much for having me, Lisa. Oh gosh, it's so much fun. We can't, we sort of couldn't stop prattling before we hit record, right? That was your word. Such a great Victorian word. So define what we mean by Victorian novels just out of the gate so we're all on the same page. Well, it's actually a little bit of a complicated question. Most people, when they say Victorian, mean the entire 19th century and they dump Jane Austen in there, even though she died 20 years before the start of the Victorian period. So properly speaking, the Victorian period spans the reign of Queen Victoria. So 1837 to 1901. Just for a little bit of perspective, though, and I'd love to show this to my students, that's 63 years, seven months and two days. If we go back 63 years, seven months and not quite two days from now, we'd be in the late summer, early fall of 1958. 
That was just when a uh, very exciting mission, military mission, uh, the submarine, the USS Nautilus, went under the North Pole for the first time from the Pacific to the Atlantic Ocean. They beat the Russians. My grandfather was on that ship, and my mother was under three years old. Wow. A great deal has happened in that time in terms of fashion and literary expression and politics, and the whole world seems a pretty different place. So when you talk about the Victorians, you're talking about that period of time, which is really, really wide. But we can make a lot of horrible generalizations about the period, which I intend to do so this morning, <laughs> um, which are actually quite accurate. And I'm backed by great thinkers like G.K. Chesterton and Joseph Pierce. So I, I'm in good standing here. Um, but it's what was, what were the themes? What were the literary uh, expressions that took place during the reign of Queen Victoria. Mm, neat. Oh, that's just such an exciting introduction. And it, it's really neat to put it in that kind of a human context of everything constantly changing and perceptions and expectations. And so now I'm even kind of hungrier than ever to dive into this topic. But could you s tell us how you kind of discovered Victorian literature and what about them just captured your heart? My introduction to the Victorians was probably similar to the introduction many people receive. So in my childhood, it was vaguely associated with Dickens's Christmas Carol, with the writings of Lewis Carroll, the writings of George MacDonald, um, so, uh, and the poetry of Robert Louis Stevenson. So, but it really, it came together in my head when I was 11 years old and my mother said, read Dickens's Great Expectations. I wrote a book report entitled Why This is the Worst Book Ever Written. I hated that fellow Dickens. I was just, and then about a year later, she handed me uh, Charlotte Bronte's Jane Eyre. Seismic horror. I just said, what is wrong with this female? And why would anybody like this book? This is so disturbing. As my students would say, hashtag, they need therapy. <laughs> it was so distressing to me. The year after that, my mother assigned me David Copperfield. And I, I was fighting tooth and nail. I didn't want to read that Dickens guy. No, just go back to reading more Jane Austen. I can't handle that fellow. And I <laughs> fell so deeply in love that I have obsessively read pretty much everything by Dickens, except maybe a few obscure letters. I just, I have never recovered from that experience of Dickens and just felt ever more deeply in love with him, and then went on to read as much as I could of the Victorians. So mm. I feel like that that grounding gives me, um, it's a good basis to work with students because students tend to respond pretty strongly to figures like Dickens, but the Victorians in general. They either fall engorgingly in love or they say, oh my goodness, so many words. So I'm able to relate <laughs> to them on both ends um, and then hopefully give them a sense of my love for the Victorians, which I think I was trying to get it into concrete, accessible, brief <laughs> terms for you <laughs> and for your listeners. I would say the three things that really caught me were the language, the vision, so the understanding of what it means to be human, both in the particular person, but also in the context of society. And the third would be the humor. The Victorians are hilarious. Wow. Wow. And so you were what age when you fell in love with Copperfield? About 13. So 11, I was 
not a Dickens fan, but by 13, and I've come to have a deep appreciation for great expectations, but it's, and I have a great respect for the novel. And I, there are many other Dickens novels I would put before it. Yeah, yeah. I kind of feel the same way, even though I'm really not comprehensively, uh, you know, literate when it comes to Dickens. Uh, there are certain ones that I've really loved. Um, yeah. So one of your favorites is Copperfield. You've pointed out some great points about language and humanity and context of the culture and everything. Um, what are some of your favorite Victorian novels overall? This is another really hard question. I, it's this, it does actually keep me awake at night trying to make, <laughs> come up with lists. Um, I would say overall, about half of Charles Dickens. Um, that's as close as I c- can get to giving you titles. Um, if we were going to do the entire Victorian period, I'm sorry, 19th century, you'd have to read all of Jane Austen as well, which is an important grounding, and why wouldn't you? But Victorians proper, I am fond of the Brontes, but with, um, I don't know, a heavy, a very large grain of salt with, with them. Um, I love Anthony Trollope. And if you were only going to read one Trollope novel, I'd say Barchester Towers. And then I hope you'd read a lot more than that. Um, I'm a big fan of Wilkie Collins. If you only read one, Woman in White. Uh, if you were going to read Gaskell, I'd say North and South or Cranford. You'd probably have to read Cranford too. Um, and there are many other authors I think you should be reading. George Eliot, but she and I have a love-hate relationship. One-sided because she's not aware of it, but she ought to be. Um, <laughs> And then you'd want to read the poetry. You'd want to read Tennyson. You'd want to read Hopkins. You'd want to read Thompson. You'd have to read Oscar Wilde, Bram Stoker's Dracula. I'm going to stop there because this list is going to get longer and longer. And then I'm going to start second guessing this list. (laughs) You'll be up all night tonight thinking about that list. It's like, but I didn't mention, I didn't mention. What am I going to (laughs) say? The lives are ruined. I forgot one of my favorites. Oh, gosh, it's so much fun to have this kind of enthusiasm and to realize, too, I feel like you have really specific things that have ignited you. And it's and it's kind of touching to think with all the variety that God pours into us when he creates us, what will fire for somebody else? Um, do you mind my just asking, what are some of the things that really ignite your students? Like, you know, hashtag they need therapy, but what are you noticing in this generation of young people that they light up about? They care very deeply about the happiness of characters, and they are able to see how um, virtue can tend towards, Jane Austen may be very happy, virtue tends towards happiness and vice tends towards unhappiness. So they're able to track that with their characters. Um, They get tremendously excited if we do um, somewhat outrageous polls to see, you know, should this character marry this character? Should this, you know. Uh, it, it always cracks me <laughs> how many people at the end, end of Jane Eyre are saying, but she should just bag them all and go to London and write books. She'd be so much happier with a therapist and a publisher. That's all she needs. <laughs> um, but they also, um, they do respond to things that are outrageous. Um, and for example, if I say to them at the end of a class, all right, we've read four books. You are on a desert island and you have these four books and you're going to starve to death unless you eat one of them. 
which book are you sacrificing and what condiment are you going to put on your book? They will spend so much time just explaining to me how they think and feel and so many really, really interesting uh, uh, observations about the book come out of that um, so that they're equipped to talk about, you know, what the major themes are, what the book actually conveys, um, which is, I think, a particular attribute of teaching high schoolers. They're beyond the stage of a book report. This is what happens in the book. And they can go deeper and say, this is what it means. This is what it conveys. This is the central theme or one of the critical themes. And that's just, it's so much fun to watch their little epiphanies going off um, and remembering Mm. one's own epiphanies, which seems so remarkable and soul expanding. And so many of mine had to do with the Victorians, especially Dickens. And I know everyone has them, but when you have them for the first time and you're 15 years old and you think I see and understand what the redemptive power of violence is in Charles Dickens it's just seismically expansive to one's soul it's really it's fun to watch in students and remember you know years and years and years ago Oh, it's so cool. I mean, there's so many things popcorning around in my brain as you're talking. The fact that we remember teachers who ignite something in our hearts and minds, right? They, we remember those moments when something came alive in us that gave us a glimpse of our own potential and the potential of thoughts and ideas in the world and the adventure of living. Um, but I also, I just really want to notice for the sake of you, the audience, that you're a scholar and you help, you know, writing critical editions and all of that and the footnotes. And you could be in that place of the theoretical place, maybe, or, or the historical context primarily. Now that's all really rich and great stuff for students, but you get excited about the stories and the people and, and that stuff too. And I feel like just even saying on a desert island and what condiment would you use? You give them, it sounds like you're igniting in them the freedom to be imaginative in their own exploration of the novels and in how they value them too. Like it's not, it's not a dead theoretical thing, which is what I experienced in high school in a public school, which was very theory heavy and story light. It was dull stuff. But well, that's not I what's happening. That, I think that's what, um, well, I hope, I hope that is the case because I think that one of the reasons many people don't like, for example, Charles Dickens is because of lousy pedagogical approaches. Um, so I actually, the way I structure my, all my classes is we start out with your uh, one word review of what we've just read, which usually by the end of the semester is about 15 words linked together with hyphens, Ah. um, which I also approve, very strong reactions. Then we do a chapter by chapter review of what went on. So because there are a lot of little questions and they'll pause and say, well, wait, why does this matter? What is this character talking about? I don't know what this word means. Mm. And then we do context. So I will give them the historical context, but interwoven in all of that and and a little bit of the theoretical, because I want them to have the tools of critical, uh, critical reading and close reading. But sprinkled Mm -hmm. in is, I passionately believe in the importance of their emotional response and their opinion. So that even if the novel is going to prove them wrong, or they have a prejudice that is holding them back from appreciating what the author is doing, we can then negotiate that and address it. It was so distressing to me in 
some of my graduate school interactions when a teacher would dismiss the power of being delighted by literature. It was all this heavy teaching, but teaching from a 21st, very politically driven perspective. So I can remember saying, well, what about the enjoyment? Enjoyment. That's for the hoi polloi. Say, well, (laughs) I guess I'm the hoi polloi because I would want my students to be delighted, to be excited, or to be dismayed. If they don't care about the characters, they're not going to be dismayed or horrified. They're just going to be, you know, counting the seconds until you're done with this book, which is, I mean, there are books that I have read, very worthy books that I have read where part of me is going, and there's another page, and there's another page. Mm -hmm. I feel like I'm doing the work. And often you have to do that work, but then with all the delight on one side and all the training you have gotten from that deep reading, you can, you can manage the disciplined work over here from that. And and you'll be driven by the enthusiasm you were able to indulge in other books. It feels so relational because one thing that I've read about the Ignatius critical editions that you've been so involved with is that um, they really do give you the genuine, authentic context of the times rather than all this imposed politics and interpretations that make, you know, everyone a certain orientation and, you know, everything has to serve the current political agenda, right? Uh, Instead of understanding the person in their times and what they were trying to say and be, it feels relational in that not only are you making space for the children to just delight, but also to get to know this new friend, this book, in context of what was going on at the time, who they really were in that period, and all of that. So it is. it just feels like the way it is to, to make a friend almost. Well, and it's interesting you say that there was a quote from Chesterton that I wanted to share with you. Um, Chesterton wrote uh, a brief work called The Victorian Age in Literature. And of course, he came of age during the late Victorian period. So he was very formed by the Victorians. So if you're going to read about the Victorians, I recommend you read G.K. Chesterton and that you also read Joseph Pierce. Um, And I will have a list of uh, books I'll be sending to you, Lisa, and we can add them to the show notes. But in talking about the novelists, um, he said, and it's a little bit of a, it's a little bit of a quote, a little paragraph here, because Chesterton never is brief or rarely is brief. He's either really, you know, succinct and zinger and, or it's several paragraphs. And people put the matter wrong when they say that the novel is a study of human nature. Human nature is a thing that even men can understand. Human nature is born of the pain of a woman. Human nature plays at peekaboo when it is two and at cricket when it is 12. Human nature earns its living and desires the other sex and dies. What the novel deals with is what women have to deal with. The differentiations, the twists and turns of this eternal river. The key of this new form of art, which we call fiction, is sympathy. And sympathy does not mean so much feeling with all who feel, but rather suffering with all who suffer. Now, why I think that's significant is when you talk about it being relational, The Victorians were characterized by this sympathetic understanding of individual people. And when you read a Victorian novel, you are engaging with so many particular people in a social context. Victorians at their best. So if you look, again, more gross generalizations here. 
if you look way back, we're in an epic mode. Epic. Everything is epic. The stage is epic. The characters are epic. And then if you come to the modern, it's actually, this is the Victorianist speaking, sort of limited. There's a lot of navel gazing in modern novels. It's not very interesting because it's just looking at yourself. I mean, so many books nowadays are one woman's explore, you know, exploration of the world and she struggles against these particular challenges and she might triumph, but mostly it's about her interior struggle. Or it's another woman's interior struggle and facing those. It's really not very interesting to me. Of course, there are amazing writers nowadays um, doing really good work, but as a sort of generalization, the Victorians had a broad stage, but not so epic and much more domestic. That's one of the major themes in the Victorians is the emphasis on the domestic community as restorative and beautiful and enriching. And this is very based in a Christian understanding versus secularized society, the outside, the big, the big organizations. So when Dickens says society with a capital S, that's, you can, he's seething with dislike because he wants the family. Um, And that's something that reflects back to Victoria herself, who had a very, very uh, loving family life, um, so often caricatured, but she restored the domestic virtues in the monarchy. Previous kings, not so much. Um, So she was really, (laughs) there was a real emphasis on feminine virtue, but also on masculine virtue. I mean, it's a complex mm-hmm. question, and th- my students and I, we can really get into this um, when we talk about the Victorians, but there is that domestic emphasis, which is grounded in that sympathy and love of the particular, the particular yeah. person, not just every man with a capital E. It's, if we're talking about Dickens, it's someone with an outrageous name. Martin Chuzzlewit is a person, and you, I mean, has that particular of a name, um, very strong characters. And when the students respond to them, there's so much to hang on to and there's so much to relate to or to react to. Um, It's just, and they don't end up spending the entire class talking about themselves, which I think if I taught modern novels, it would just be, it would be like small group sharing in in a bad way, not in a good way. Right, kind of banal. Um, yeah. yeah, it's interesting what you said, too, about domestic, because just before you said the word, that was, that's what was coming to mind, that actual word. And I thought, yes, the world's bigger issues are all processed and discussed at great lengths or commented upon or reacted to within the context of the family, within that mm-hmm. domestic sphere where all the important stuff happens. But But while dealing with the tangled demands and difficulties of that bigger stage that's out there, right? Um, yeah. yeah, so it's not Lawrence of Arabia, it's, and it's not kitchen sink drama either. There's very much an involvement in, and a response to the world and a, and, a, and a concern for the world, but it all comes out of that, that heartfelt place of the family. Yeah, such a great, great distinction. 
Um, yeah, so you're igniting interest in the Victorians with your students, and I'm assuming with your own children as well. Where do you begin to open the door into what may be language that's very foreign to them at first and situations that need a lot of context and explanation? How do you open that door? Well, as I said, I try to structure my class with a great deal. My classes, which would be the most formal place where I'm doing this work, um, with all of the opportunities to give the context of language and explanation and field all the questions. So I, I want it built into our conversation. Um, but it happens in my household as well. And this is why I tell parents um, when, if they want to encourage their children to be readers, the way to do that is to be a reader yourself. And the more that parents are engaging with the text, that's where the fruitfulness comes. Um, so I've introduced my children to Charles Dickens. And because there are five of them, we often are using an audiobook. So our read aloud is almost always an audiobook. Um, right. And it's always on. There's always an audiobook on. So the conversation is nonstop. And the, wait, what does that word mean? Um, oh my goodness, I respond to this character this way. And um, we've had to explain to our children the place of hyperbole because I'm rather inclined to be hyperbolic when I'm, especially <laughs> when I'm talking about literature. I once in a class, I don't even remember the class, referring to some character said, oh, pick up a fire iron and just bash him on the head with it and then kept going. And I still to this day have students who make jokes about the fire iron. I don't remember <laughs> saying it. I believe I said it. And I'm sure whichever character it was totally deserved it. But, um, so they're, they're very attached to the, to the fire iron. Um, and one of these days, I'm going to figure out who, of whom I spoke. Um, but then those, the, the next step is, why? Why do I loathe this character? Why am I angry at this character? And that conversation just, it flows from the parental or teacherly interaction with the text. So because I get excited, which I do a little bit, um, they do. <laughs> and my children will just, they will gush. And, and watching them to respond to different genres. My eldest does not like to be creeped out. So she's informed me that when she's 18, she might read my Gothic novels. She uh, mm -hmm. prefers that I don't leave copies of Dracula out. She wouldn't let me build a Dracula puzzle after my birthday. Um, I said, well, <laughs> fine, I'll do it at the beach and you can just. <laughs> so um, my second is devouring mystery literature. She's eight years old. And I came in the other night and she was reading the Nancy Drew, whom I find a little obnoxious. All the clothing <laughs> descriptions. Come on, move on. But in <laughs> I loved those when I was a kid. <laughs> she loves them. And, you know, all you can see are her huge eyes and you know, over the back of this lurid. Well, she's a very Nancy attractive girl. That's the most important thing. <laughs> and she, yeah, she changes more than a Deanna Durbin movie. But she, um, there's Veronica and she looks up at me and she goes, oh, it's so exciting. She's been kidnapped. I said, honey, it's nine o'clock. We need to turn out the light. You're going to bed. Let me finish this chapter. And then she went straight to sleep. So watching different children respond to different genres and learning their tolerance level for uh, deep emotional experiences or things that are creepy. Um, reading alongside my eldest and getting to the point in a Dickens novel where can't say character name because it'll give it away. A character dies. And we were reading along, listen, or we we're listening to the audiobook, and I was preparing PowerPoints for my class, for one of my classes. And she was laying on a beanbag, 
I think she might've been actually playing cards. In any case, all of a sudden she looked up and she went, mommy, why are you crying? You're crying. Oh no. And then the character died and she wept. And so we sat there and wept together over the character and then talked through what it meant for the, for the, um, the overarching plot. And, and it was so beautiful and just so, those are the sorts of moments that I try to, I mean, not that I always want to reduce my children to sobbing messes, um, although it's appropriate. Sometimes we should process grief. <laughs> so read Nicholas Nickleby, and when you get to the part that makes you cry, you'll know that Beatrice was weeping, and I was <laughs> and it was beautiful. And then she loved, she came to love Dickens. Mm-hmm. And so it, that's the, uh, those are some of the ways. So when my students respond strongly, when my children respond strongly, I want to be right there with them and say, well, why? Why do you think that all the Bronte characters need therapy? <laughs> or we reached the end of one of the books and they were saying one character, he was, were they sad at his death or were they happy at his death? I said, well, if he'd lived, would he have reformed his life? And everyone went, whoa, stop. Let's look at, it's a character who's an addict. Would he have been reformed? I mean, we spent so much time getting into that. And that's some serious in-depth reflection, mm-hmm. um, which will then apply to one's spiritual life. One's experience mm-hmm. with people who either have addictions or have any predominant fault that, you know, is going to jeopardize their souls. So, mm, yeah, this seems a nice place to segue into um, just draw tease out a few lessons that you feel like come from absorbing these novels, these incredible characters, this um, particularness of the human person. You've touched on a lot of the lessons already, but anything that we've that you'd like to make sure we touch on? I would add to that domestic focus to actually I'm going to make it three. I sound like I'm doing the um, Spanish Inquisition skit. Um, it's not two. It's three. It's three. Um, which, by the way, all students really need to experience before they take my classes because one of the themes we talk about is faith. And in the Victorian period, you have this really fascinating and complex mess um, because there is a major rise in atheism, but there was such a yearning for faith so that even a secular humorist like George Eliot, when she wants to express greatness of soul, she talks about Teresa of Avila. Hmm. So there's a, a Christian language that still permeates these texts. Um, I mean, we usually have to stop and say, yes, technically speaking, Dickens's theology is wrong right here. However, let's look at what the beauty, what he's trying to express And specifically, there is a rise of a Catholic aesthetic and a Christian, a Catholic spring that takes place halfway through the Victorian period, which Mm. leads to the early 20th century and the great heyday of the English Catholic novel. So I'd say that one of those, the critical lessons is the, the search for faith. Wow. The third, the third is humor. And I want to give you another quote from uh, Chesterton on this which always makes me laugh. You, he's speaking of the last essential of the Victorian. Laugh at him as a limited man, a moralist, conventionalist, an opportunist, a formalist. But remember also that he was really a humorist and may still be laughing at you. 
When you read the Victorians, I think it's one of the reasons too, they're able to plumb the depth of the particular. They're laughing often. All right. Some of them, I don't think Thomas Hardy had a sense of humor at all. He tedious man, but (laughs) most of them can laugh. And even when they're looking at themselves can be laughing at themselves, which leads me to the last, the last lesson. And this is applicable to great literature generally. And I want to quote for you from uh, C.S. Lewis's An Experiment of Criticism. It's the very end. Absolutely love this quotation. And it, when I read it for the first time, it was another seismic soul expansion. Literary experience heals the wound without undermining the privilege of individuality. There are mass emotions which heal the wound, but they destroy the privilege. In them, our separate selves are pooled and we sink back into sub-individuality. But in reading great literature, I become a thousand men and yet remain myself. Like the night sky in the Greek poem, I see with a myriad eyes, but it is still I who see. Here, as in worship, in love, in moral action, and in knowing, I transcend myself and am never more fully myself than when I do. And just that, I think that's very, it's not solely Victorian, but captures the best of the Victorians as well, because you are seeing myriad eyes with myriad eyes. You have this grand stage, sort of like when you read Bram Stoker's Dracula, you feel rightly as if Bram Stoker, who was a uh, director of a stage. So he, he was a stage manager he goes, and the cast, and they all march out, um, and they take a bow together. He likes a big cast, and the Victorians tend to like that really big cast. But you come away from it not having navel-gazed for 900 pages, which would probably drive most sane people off their rocker, <laughs> um, but you have expanded within yourself and become more fully yourself and are more equipped to understand yourself and to engage with man and with God from reading this book, even if it's a light humor novel, which you get a lot of humor, for example, in Anthony Trollope. Um, You come away saying, what is it to be a lady? What is it to be a gentleman? What are the qualities of the human person that are desirous, that are virtuous, that tend towards happiness? And what do I wish for myself? That's a lot. And and that's why I think, you know, there's a certain amount like standing in front of a painting at the Metropolitan Gallery in New York, every human being will respond to one thing or another in a various ways, and they don't need the critic standing there explaining. But to have somebody like you as a tour guide, as someone to ask the right questions and draw out reactions so that the students can say them out loud and hear each other's responses and experience together as a little community the beauty and the power of these themes, of these characters, of the writing itself, and open up all sorts of possibilities for their own expression as human beings, as creative people, etc., as thinkers, as people who ask great questions. Uh, It's just such a gift to have somebody with a passion for it to invite them in. So tell us a little bit about your courses, Eleanor. I'm sure all the parents are kind of going, where can we sign our kids up? This is so much fun. (laughs) Hopefully, because I I have, I love those 
classes. I love teaching for homeschool connections. Um, and because it brings me back to the happiest time, some of the happiest moments in my life, remembering being a high school homeschooler and laying on my bed and reading an entire Dickens novel in a day and a half, and then sort of coming out of that, um, and engaging with my mother, with my brothers, with my cousins, caring so deeply and so passionately about them. So I tend to teach the Victorians. Um, I sometimes go a little further and do genre concentration. So uh, I would say that the genres I'm strongest in or more inclined to teach are the Gothic and uh, mystery fiction. So they're related, deeply related. Um, I could... I could teach anything in English literature in the canon up to about 1930, unless we're talking about straight mystery fiction. In the upcoming year, I will be teaching an intro to the 19th century. So we'll read Austin, Dickens, and Elizabeth Gaskell. And then in the spring, I will be teaching a class on the Victorian detective. So the origins of the detective genre, where he comes from, um, whether... Uh, Edgar Allan Poe or Wilkie Collins is really the creator of this genre. Um, So those are the sorts of things we'll be debating and uh, laying the groundwork for appreciating the golden age of mystery fiction. Um, So that's what I'll be teaching next, this upcoming year. But I do tend to go back to, well, the Victorians, but going a little early so I can teach. I have a two semester course on Jane Austen, which I've taught. And that was so much fun. Read everything Jane Austen, become a Jane Austen expert. It's so much fabulous fun. It's the sort of thing they let you do in graduate school, but with all those critics hanging over you. And they just don't feel that high school high schoolers are capable of it. I think high schoolers are eminently capable of it. And if they are going to fall in love with literature, they need to do it now. Need to do mm. it now. Amen. Amen. And so um, just to point out to everyone listening, Eleanor is not only doing her courses that she'll teach live this year, but has a number of courses that have already been taught and they're archived in the Unlimited Access Program, which is the deal of the century. So please do take a look at those over the summer. You don't have to wait for the fall. You can start to have you and your kids having just the best fun ever going through some of these courses even before the fall. And then sign up for her live classes so that you can have lots of fun with Eleanor Nicholson. Um, any closing thoughts for us, Eleanor? Just, I cannot emphasize enough how much I love interacting with these students and with their families because my my immediate go-tos when loving literature are personally my mother, two of my cousins, and my baby brother. And then there are, there are other tiers. My husband's part of that. Um, He doesn't like Charles Dickens, and this proves, as I tell my students, you can be eminently lovable, worthy of respect, and totally tasteless. Um, So so if you don't (laughs) like Dickens, my husband will sympathize. I did have to think about that when he asked me to marry him. I love you you so much, but can I handle your your lack of taste? Um, But so I would say that... My love for the families, for the students and their parents is reflected from, that's my, where I came from. So I love the idea of families doing the recorded courses together, reading the books together and sending me their thoughts. I love hearing from the parents too and knowing what they're thinking and feeling and what characters fire their imagination because that re-inspires me 
to return. It's it's infectious. It's infectious. So thank you to all of the parents and all the students and to Homeschool Connections. This is such, this is what I do for fun. This is what I do for fun. Mm, yeah. And just as a quick side note, practically every homeschooling mom or dad or teen or anybody listening to this episode is might be thinking, you know, the adults are learning right along with the kids, like those audiobooks playing in the home and the classes from Homeschool Connections playing on the computer screen in that central location in the home. We're all absorbing and getting excited. So, yeah, the parents are learning, too. And what a lot of fun. So many of my homeschooling friends and myself have said we've learned so much in the process of homeschooling. So everybody, come and find Eleanor Nicholson. I have her website in the show notes. I also have uh, her the connection to her course page. Also take a look at Unlimited Access, and we will have other notes, some a little bit of a reading list too in the show notes. Uh, but uh, Eleanor, can't thank you enough. This was just a ton of fun. Thank you for having me, Lisa. It's, it's, it's been a blast. And I really thought we were going to have children, the sudden, uh, you know, appearance of myriad, myriad eyes uh, and myriad voices, but we didn't. <laughs> <laughs> sort of we welcome on this show. <laughs> this, this is the homeschooling mom and me going, what, what's going on upstairs? It got yeah. really quiet. <laughs> it's too quiet. Yeah. They're building so Frankenstein every, up there. <laughs> yeah. Every parent pray for me when I go up that staircase. What am I going to find? It's like we decided to take apart in the entire house and build a fort while listening to an audiobook. So it was practically schoolwork, architecture and and literature. Wow. See, you can put that on your report now for the school district. <laughs> what a homeschooler. See, this is I love talking to homeschoolers because if we understand the code, we understand the code. Yeah, exactly. Anything I can put on that report to keep them happy. <laughs> you know, one oh. last thing I'll throw out is when I went, I went, I went from community college and transferred to the University of Virginia, and they wanted me to take various tests to prove that I had completed high school. And I, so I wrote a letter and I outlined what I had achieved as a high schooler and said, I believe that this should more than suffice for your requirement. And it apparently did. Um, but I mean, it was pages <laughs> and pages saying, this is what I have achieved as a high school homeschooler. And let me explain to you the limitations of your expectations of you know what, what high school education looks like. And yes, I, I've often wondered what the person in, it, you know, in that office who was looking over my application thought. Probably thought, oh, mercy, send her to the English department. She'd write <laughs> quickly. <laughs> Get her enrolled or we're going to be in trouble. <laughs> uh, well, God bless you and your family, Eleanor. Thank you so much for this time. And, and God bless whatever creative pursuits are going on upstairs. Uh, everybody, thank you so much for being with us and taking the time. Uh, whatever you're doing as you're listening, may God bless it and God bless your families. Please stay tuned for our short feature coming right up. Welcome to the Thriving Catholic Homeschool Blueprint. My name is Paula Siskanek. I'm the co-founder of the Catholic Homeschool Network, 
conferences, and community. I want you to know that usually a school year is about 32 weeks, but in reality, you really only need to complete maybe 24 weeks, okay? That's like 12 weeks per semester. You can also just log hours, 120, 150 hours per year, okay? That translates to a good solid three to four hours per subject, and I'm talking about middle school and high school level. There is so much that you can do as a family that counts as school. And it can be done even with the little ones and the big ones. These subjects include things like music lessons, physical education, and, and that could be just walking the dog or the sports that your kids are signed up for. Nature study is a great thing to do as a family. And it doesn't have to be very complex. Study the neighborhood, your own backyard, read about the plants, the birds, the local flora, fauna, make a nature journal. And it becomes a great scrapbook too for the family. Now, this next tip is for you, homeschool parent, because this is something I highly recommend that you do. Set aside two, three hour planning time every single week. Yes, for your sake and for your family's sake. You can give out your weekly assignments and to the older children, but use that time also to, to gather materials that you need for the younger children. And I would also love to see you add in one day a month that you call an in-service day that you set aside to dive a little deeper into the planning, to reflect, to record, to make adjustments. It keeps things moving in a positive direction. It helps you to realize how much is actually really getting done. And as far as record keeping, well, just keep a notebook for yourself. Just put a journal entry every week with the milestones you see for each child. That's great. Then keep a file folder, simple one, even maybe color code them for each child. And there you can just start plopping in samples of math worksheets, spelling tests, any achievements. Keep it super simple this year. Please and please do celebrate the milestones. You know, it is so easy for us to see only what is not done, to feel behind. Instead, take a closer look at all that does get done and celebrate. It has been an honor, awesome fun, a rewarding thing for me to create these videos for you. I've been getting, you know, great comments. I love the interaction and I just love working with homeschooling families. I know that these free videos have already made perhaps a big impact on maybe several families who've been commenting. Maybe it's even helped you. I'd love to hear about what you'll be doing with your thriving Catholic homeschool blueprint. Please send questions, but most important, leave a comment for me. I've been reading every single comment, responding to dozens of them, and I would love to hear from you. Thank you so much for allowing me into your precious life. Happy homeschooling, and may God bless you abundantly. Hmm.
And that's our show for today. Our program is sponsored by homeschoolconnections.com. Be sure to subscribe to Homeschooling Saints and leave us an honest review. God bless you and thank you for joining us.